Hello, welcome to the Global Missions Health Conference's 2020 conference, virtual conference. This um, is Geopolitical and Cultural Changes in the Great Commission. I'm Rick Donlin. I, uh, I'm a combined internal medicine and pediatrics physician. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. also have been an ER doctor as part of my career. Um, primarily my work over the years and my involvement in the GMHC is, has surrounded our inner city primary care provision uh, in Christian health centers here in Memphis. In addition to that, um, I serve as an elder in a house church network um, that has planted churches in low-income neighborhoods here in Memphis. And that house church network has sent over 20 families uh, into North Africa, the Middle East, um, Central Asia, and the Arab Arabian Peninsula. I live uh, and have for the last 17 years in a community called Binghampton with my very large family, uh, including five adult children and two kids at home. Uh, in addition, I am uh, frequently a speaker for the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement uh, class. Uh, the Great Commission is, uh, should be well known to most believers. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And um, that commandment has not changed since it was given 20 centuries ago and the mission of God to bring everything in all creation uh, back and restore it to himself under one ruler Jesus um, has not changed since before the time of creation the plans of God are, are being accomplished and the Great Commission is being accomplished there was a time when it was done over Roman roads and horseback and there's been history especially in the last centuries of the explosion of the Christian movement through Catholic and Protestant missionary movements. But um, one thing has been certain, there's been change in all of the process, the 20 centuries. The goal hasn't changed, but the methods and the means have. And so what I want to talk to you about today in this, in this uh, breakout session is six things that are presently happening in our world they may not be the most important six things, but six things that I think are important for um, missionaries and potential missionaries to consider and that will have an impact, I believe, on the way the gospel proceeds in, in our time and in the um, foreseeable future. Because all of us have preconceived ideas. If you close your eyes and I ask you uh, what you think a missionary looks like, you'll, you'll have an idea in your head. And if I ask you what do you think missionaries do? Similarly, you'll have an idea about that. And many of those ideas will be true and correct. But again, the reality is that's changed over the centuries and will continue to change. And so I want to present to you six developments or realities in our present world um, that will likely affect the way we understand what a missionary is and what missionaries do and how they do it. So the first of those is the continuing growth of the global south. So this um, picture depicts only the southern hemisphere and to highlight the fact that a great deal of population growth, especially Christian growth, has occurred not in the traditional centers of Christianity, those being Europe and North America and particularly America and Canada, but the real leading edge of the Christian movement for some time now and for the foreseeable future will be in countries that are not traditionally the, the ones that we think of as missionary sending countries. So um, this is a slide depicting the changes just in the last 100 or so years that the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, um, fully two thirds of all Christians on earth lived in Europe. Only about 15% of the Christians on earth in 1910 lived in North America. And there were really smattering small numbers of people, uh, Christian people in places particularly like Asia and Africa. But if you look just a hundred years later, not only has there been a huge growth in the just the numbers of Christian people, but the distribution of Christians has dramatically changed. And so Europe that once had two-thirds of all the Christians on earth now is back to only about a quarter of that. That's a significant huge reduction actually. And if you look at the slide, 
in particular Africa has grown from really one or two percent to almost a quarter and Asia similarly has expanded significantly um, and will continue to expand and Latin America has almost doubled and so looking at that in a different way <clears throat> the the bubbles in this slide uh, are designed to reflect the sheer numbers of Christian people and it's true certainly that there are still many people who are at least nominally Christian in in Europe and in North America but the growing edge of Christianity the growing edge of Christian leadership even is occurring in Latin America Africa and in Asia and again, that trend is likely to continue, especially in the case of Africa, at least over the last several decades, the growth in Africa has been the most dramatic. So again, in our concept of what is a missionary and what do they do and how do they do it? Again, there's been a longstanding view of a missionary. This, this picture is an actual picture of a German missionary in the 19th century in the South Pacific. And it's, it probably, I hope it seems a little extreme now, but Still, there is a, an assumption in the minds of many people, based on, to some degree on history, that missionaries are Europeans, in this case this is a German missionary, or they're North Americans, they're Americans, uh, and they hail from wealthy European or, or Western settings, and they bring the message of the gospel and their culture to other places. And in that reality, uh, well, not it won't go away forever, and it won't go away probably ever, meaning that there will always, I hope, Lord willing, remain significant numbers of Christians in Europe and North America, that there's always, I hope, until the return of Jesus or the end, um, a role for Western Christians especially, but that the, the role is changing and the role is, is going to be, um, in some degrees, um, shared. That's probably the best word with people rightly shared with people from other parts of the globe so that the religion of Christianity, which began in the Middle East and North Africa, in uh, Central Asia and the Mediterranean Rim, uh, and only in the middle centuries and later became uh, really a European or North American religion, is going to continue to return to the roots that it had into other parts of the world in fulfillment of the Bible's prophecies. And the people who live in those places are going to increasingly be part of the missionary movement and provide leadership for the missionary movement. So this is a recent uh, story in Christianity Today about the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, which is um, well known to many GMHC attendees, which is uh, a great program where Western surgeons train African surgeons in Africa, and those surgeons then are deployed to other locations in Africa and train additional surgeons. And so... Uh, Christianity is, today is right that the new face of medical missions is going to look in some, in many places, different than it has in the past. And in fact, ministry all over the world, and especially as we're going into those parts of the world that remain unreached, those, those parts of the world where the church is not established, where Jesus is not honored and worshipped, where there's strong opposition because of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or other religions or philosophies, that in those places, many of the, uh, the future efforts are going to be led by missionaries from places like South Korea and Brazil, or by missionaries who are raised up within the very continent or even countries where they, they have contact with near-culture, unreached peoples. And the reality, the good reality, is that even the movement of the, the of missionary movement worldwide, which is exemplified by the Lausanne movement, for instance. The Lausanne is, since the 1970s, has been a worldwide um, conferencing regarding getting the Great Commission accomplished and seeing Orthodox Christianity spread around the world. The Lausanne conference, if you look at this uh, from, their, from their website, is now featuring increasingly leaders from diverse parts of the world and not just from America and from Europe. And that's, that's a good thing. There is a um, frequently cited um, concern about the spread of the gospel in such rapid rates, especially in Africa and Latin America, in that the um, heretical prosperity gospel is growing. And this, of course, is not new to the history of the church. Many of the books of the New Testament were written 
uh, to address heresies. It's clear if one reads the book of Acts and the uh, Pauline epistles that there have always been false teachers and false apostles. And um, if one reads the book of Revelation in the warnings to the churches in the first uh, chapters two and three, there will always be people who attempt to draw off believers and unbelievers to a false version of Christianity, which the prosperity gospel most certainly is. And it is growing. This is Christianity Today again. Um, health and wealth gospel, a gospel that calls people not to um, take up their cross and be reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus and to offer themselves to him and to um, obey all of his commandments and to seek to serve and save the lost. Um, the prosperity gospel, simply put, is a is a false gospel that calls people to their own personal wealth and comfort and, and physical wellness in this world and away from the truth of discipleship and obedience and the faithfulness that the church has always stood for. Now, it would be a mistake to blame the Africans, frankly, or the Latin Americans who are having to endure the prosperity gospel. It didn't come from them. The prosperity gospel came from the good old United States of America in the neo Pentecostal movements in places like Oklahoma and Texas. And so the preachers of the prosperity gospel in the United States have spread that false gospel into the developing world. And that's an issue that um, will continue to be problematic. Secondly, the second thing I would like us to consider, and we'll spend the least amount of time on this, is the um, reality that we are in presently in and will continue to live in a world where people are moving to and living in cities rather than in rural areas. And so this is um, from the United Nations, a prediction based on data that more than two-thirds of the world's population will live in urban areas just in the next 30 years or so. And presently we're at about 55% of the world's population who live in cities. So over half of the world's population live in cities presently and that will continue to grow. Um, that has, again, a uh, a real strategic importance to us. There will um, forever again be, uh, there will likely be always people who live in rural, non-urban settings who will certainly need to hear and will profit by hearing the gospel and by having churches planted in those areas. But the majority of people will be in cities and in the history of the church, even in the history of the New Testament documents, the gospel spread primarily from going from population center to population center. And even the apostles' missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts are journeys from Roman colony or other significant population center to, to additional population centers. And so cities um, are becoming even more crucial in understanding where the world's population lives. And missionaries, um, even though in the past we might have closed our eyes and imagined a missionary in a very rural setting, uh, somewhere in the bush or somewhere far away. Again, th those places remain and will continue to need the gospel in various places, particularly places with high um, concentrations of rural, rural populations like China and India in particular, the two largest countries in the world. Um, nonetheless, missionaries will increasingly be urban will live in cities and megacities and will think in strategy in regard to living in those settings rather than in rural settings. Third, and the point which we will probably speak the most about, is the growing trend of nationalism. By nationalism, uh, what we mean is an identification with one's own nation and support for that nation's interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. And so um, nationalism is growing in multiple parts of the world and uh, is on the rise. There are growing political movements uh, in Europe and certainly in the United States and other countries of, of an increased interest in the national interests in a, in a ethnocentric approach, meaning concern primarily with our own people and our own tribe. And I use that word tribe loosely. I do want to use that because in some cases, the 
the idea of nationalism, of being exclusive and loyal to your own people, extends beyond national borders. It may actually be a religious um, loyalty, and in some cases it's a cultural loyalty within a larger nation that has multiple cultures. And so, again, honestly, we're seeing that to some degree in our own nation, the way people view immigrants, for instance, and without getting into too much discussion about the American situation, nationalism and tribalism and religious tribalism, a, a subset of that, that process, um, all those things are happening in big ways. I want to first mention India, because India is an incredibly populous nation with a huge number of different cultural groups and is presently run by, this is the Prime Minister uh, Modi, uh, the leader of India at this time, and he's a member of a Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, and they have been in power for some time now, and they promote a philosophy of India first, and frankly, Hinduism first, and uh, the uh, attempt to identify India as a nation with Hindus primarily, and with um, people who are aligned with them politically along those lines. That is a significant issue in India because there are many, many other cultures and there is a, a very large Muslim culture in India and the BJP and the Modi government have um, been enacting laws, uh, most recently one regarding citizenship for people who have moved or um, and granting rights uh, of Indian citizenship to people who've had some question about their um, origins in the past, even if they and their families have been living in India for decades. Um, that legislation, I think, by all fair readings, significantly favors Hindus and makes it more difficult, especially for Muslims, to obtain the full rights of citizenship in India. And that has led to and will probably continue to lead to clashes. In India and in other nations, nationalism has also led to um, a attempt by governments, in this case India's government, to minimize the influence of other countries, especially the cultural influence of other countries. And so many, many NGO workers and Christian workers in India have been increasingly under pressure, uh, including some uh, Indians who were born in India but have lived in the West, particularly in America, and then have tried to do work, NGO work or missions work in India. Uh, in many cases, those uh, people have been denied visas or have even been um, driven from the country and refused uh, opportunities to continue their work. And again, that's a fairly crucial thing strategically for this nation. Uh, in this map, this is a map of unengaged people groups, not just the unreached people groups, but there are unreached people groups who have missionaries and ministries already um, active and working in, in attempts to make disciples. And then there are other unreached people groups that don't even have um, folks engaged with them, don't have people who are thinking and planning and strategizing about how to bring the truth and the gospel and the church to those places. The largest concentration, or one of the largest concentrations of unengaged, unreached people groups is in the subcontinent of India. So strategizing about how to reach those people given India's present nationalism and Hindu tribalism is uh, an example of how this is one of the factors we're going to have to consider. In the other giant nation in the world, China, also a billion plus people, um, it appears there is talk now in our present era, with our, especially with the president that we have at this moment, um, that there may be a, a so-called second Cold War, meaning the world it becomes divided between loyalties between two great powers. Presumably this would be the United States and China, and that those two countries acting in their own national interests as nationalists um, in, in the interests of themselves and their allies will try to influence the world and therefore alter the political realities on the ground. There is evidence that this is happening. I don't mean that the United States doesn't spend money and its uh, economic interests aren't active in the world, but this is a slide that depicts the investments that the Chinese have made, the Chinese government in particular, and Chinese companies, which are strongly influenced by the Chinese government in the nation of Africa. And 
So there are billions and billions of dollars being spent by the Chinese in Africa and significant amounts of it, over $10 billion uh, in Ghana, in Nigeria, uh, and other parts of the continent. And again, some of these places where the Chinese are investing large amounts of money are also places where there remain large numbers of unengaged or unreached people groups. And so the influence of the United States and or the influence of China in places like this will likely have an effect on how strategies are formed and and tactics and strategies are put into place to try to reach these places. This is a, just another slide showing that the same reality is happening in Latin America. These are loans and capital that's being made available by the Chinese government to, to Latin American countries. Uh, most of these are South American, with there are some even in Central America like Mexico and Costa Rica. China, in addition to uh, trying to increase its influence through the giving of money and loans and building of railroads and power plants and various other um, infrastructure projects, has also become, at least in some parts of, it, of the nation, increasingly closed to outsiders. And this is particularly true in parts of China, particularly Western China, where there are minority groups who are not the majority Han Chinese, but are typically from a different uh, tribe and or religion. And so the longstanding example would be Tibetans in Tibet who are Buddhists and who have increasingly over the years had pressure from the Chinese and Tibet has been um, a place that's been difficult to enter and remain, especially for people interested in being faithful witnesses there. More recently, the Uyghur people, who are a Muslim minority people group in Western China, have in large numbers been put in quote-unquote re-education camps, including, which, which is really very similar to prison, and, um, a, and attacks have been made on their culture and religion uh, by the Chinese government. Perhaps uh, equally important to understand, again, we're talking about parts of the world where the gospel must and will be preached and where the church will be established. So if one wants to understand um, the Arabian Peninsula and the Middle East and Central Asia, one has to understand the ongoing conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And so this is a conflict that is also in addition to nationalism, has a religious tribalism to it. The heart of the conflict largely is between Sunni Muslims, which are, again, these colors changed on these maps, so I hope it's not confusing, but um, Saudi Arabia and the countries affiliated with Saudi Arabia are Sunni Muslims, and Iran and its affiliates are Shia Muslims. And so... Over the last 50 years, sometimes in overt conflicts like the Iran-Iraq War that happened decades, a few decades ago, but in ongoing conflicts in places like Syria and Lebanon and in the circles around Israel, in the conflict that's unfortunately been devastating Yemen, uh, there is behind this a conflict between the powers in Iran of Shia Islam and the strongest powers of Sunni Islam, which are presently located in Saudi Arabia. And so those conflicts um, create political realities that have to be understood and managed uh, as we hope and pray to see the gospel spread even in the heart of Islam. All right, so um, Queen Elizabeth and you may be wondering what's, what's the point of all this? Um, is this just a current events class. No, um, I think the, the primary point you probably have already understood that we have to understand the world and we have to understand the political realities that exist in the world and that they have real implications for travel and the ability to gain visas, the ability to work for extended periods of time or work at all in some cultures and the, therefore the means by which we will, we the global church will be able to bring the gospel to parts of the world. There is another point which um, I think is important for us to examine, and, and that is we are not immune to nationalism. And by that I mean that um, most people grow up in a culture and they are taught 
they don't even need to be taught. They assume that their culture is the right culture and the good culture and its story of origin is the right story and that there is nobility and purpose um, and honor in their culture, and especially when compared to other cultures who have been historically at odds with them, and that um, in America's case, there's even a firmly held belief that we are exceptional, that, that there is American exceptionality, exceptionalism, that um, means it's unlike any other country. And so uh, my only warning about that to myself and to others is to realize that nationalism is something that we ourselves can inadvertently foster and um, promote and be influenced by, and that that is in the long term antithetical to the purposes of missions. Uh, we are not exporting American values or American version of Christianity. Instead, we are part of something that existed thousands of years before America and will likely will and very well may it will certainly exist forever until the coming of the king America may not exist uh, for another thousand years who knows all right and to that end I want to remind us of the story in Daniel 2 one of the many amazing and confusing visions that are recorded in the book of Daniel but in in this story I want to remind you of is when King Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of the Babylonian Empire had a dream and the dream troubled him and he called for all of his enchanters and magicians and so forth and asked them not only to interpret the dream but also to give the content of the dream he did not tell them what he dreamt but he uh, asked them to interpret it um, without him telling the facts and when no one was able to do that Nebuchadnezzar gave the order to kill all of the magi among whom were included Daniel the the eunuch prophet from Israel who had come in the uh, exile and the um, was serving Nebuchadnezzar and he gained the opportunity to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and by the grace of God by God's by the Holy Spirit he received a picture of the of the Emperor Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation of it and so if you recall Nebuchadnezzar saw a gigantic uh, statue and its head was made of gold and its chest with silver and bronze was the lower belly and th uh, thighs and its feet were made of iron and its feet were made of a combination of iron and clay. And so the vision was given to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream and the interpretation was given by God to Daniel. And Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar that what he had seen, what Nebuchadnezzar had seen, was a picture of the present and the future in the empires that would, were presently existing and would follow. And so Daniel explained to them that part. He also explained to them the part that I haven't mentioned yet, that after Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue made of these different parts, he then saw a giant rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, and that giant rock came and smashed to pieces every bit of the statue made up of its different parts. And so here from Daniel 2, 44 and 45, is Daniel's discussion with Nebuchadnezzar about the dream, and especially the end part of the dream. Reading those verses now, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So I think you understand the point I'm making. Um, in the history of God saving the world, sometimes the world was ruled by Babylonians or Persians or Greeks or Romans. Sometimes the dominant nation was Great Britain. At present, it appears that it's the United States of America. All that's fine, but all of that is temporary. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ, represented by this giant rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, that smashes all human empires and all human greatness and political power, that is the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that is here now and is growing and will come to fruition at his return. And so 
We, Christian people in all nations, but particularly in America, need to remember that America is here now and we're grateful for it. And there certainly are things to celebrate in our culture and our nation's history. There are also things that we should rightly reflect on and even bear some shame for and work to change. But the truth is, America is going to go the way of Babylonia or Persia or Greece, that it really doesn't matter in the ultimate scheme of things. And that as hard as it is for us to believe, the fastest growing church in the world in Iran, made up of new Christian believers, real Christian believers in America, and real Christian believers in Iran have far more in common with each other than a believing Christian does in America with his non-believing American co-citizens. Like, to use the lyrics from a Derek Webb song, our first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man, not to democracy or blood. Our allegiance is to a king and a kingdom. In addition to that, I would say, our first allegiance is not to a particular economic system. It's to a king and a kingdom. Okay, number four, big trend and change that's affecting the way we understand what a missionary is and what a missionary does is the reality of refugees and displaced persons in the world. Um, this is a time that's unprecedented. I read yesterday in the New York Times, that again, the United Nations is saying that there are north of 80 million people who are either refugees or internally displaced persons, people who have been displaced and are in unstable living situations because of political realities, because of famine, because of, of uh, climate change, and especially because of war. And so 26 million of those refugees uh, exist at present uh, who are requiring absolute support. There is another 46 million people who live in the countries where they're from, but they're internally displaced. And then other asylum seekers and um, the UN High Commission for Refugees made a specific point about the large number presently of Venezuelans. Um, lots of these, these are children. Uh, many of these refugees are being presently housed in countries that are low or medium income rather than wealthy countries. There have been many, many uh, especially because of the Syrian conflict for the last several years. Many, many people who have immigrated to Europe and um, even non-Christian uh, news sites like the Daily Beast have commented on the reality that hundreds of Pakistanis and Afghans have been lining up at local swimming pools in Germany, other places to be baptized. They're converting from Islam to Christianity. And that trend, according to the Daily Beast, and in fact, in reality, is growing. And they make the point that uh, converts are filling up European churches largely forsaken by their old Christian flocks. So this is really great news. And um, it has been, there have been naysayers who report that people are doing this for political reasons, hoping to therefore claim that they can't return to their countries of origin because if they returned as Christians to, especially to an Islamic country where conversion to Christianity was outlawed, that they would be jailed or killed. But I, I have a um, high degree of confidence that many, many, many of these conversions are real. And so um, out of the very great difficulty and hardship, and they have, many of these refugees have had terrible hardships. There have been uh, thousands, most years, somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 over the last decade, people trying to flee countries die doing that, including large numbers of children. So um, the large movement of peoples who are fleeing their own countries, the large, op the, the new openness that those people have to hearing the truth of the gospel is a great blessing. And the suffering that they endure is yet an op another opportunity for the church to do what it has always done since the first century in, com in obedience to the commandments of Jesus, and that's meet the needs of the most marginalized people. And so going back not to the first century, but to the Torah, to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, just a reminder for us, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. 
He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So not surprisingly, really um, fruitful ministries have been, have been growing, especially among high concentrations of people who have, have, are living as refugees. Because of the high degree of difficulty that's associated with leaving your country and the hardships that many of these people endured, in some cases the hardships of war and loss and the suffering and sometimes death and moving from one country to another, they, they've endured, many of these people have endured great degrees of trauma. And so there are growing ministries uh, that have been highlighted at GMHC and in other places of using trauma healing, biblically based trauma healing to help refugees and to be part of the process of their, not only their salvation, but their growth and their recovery and their quote unquote resiliency. Okay, number five of six, and I am by no means an expert on technology, but I want to share with you just um, some things I've learned even recently um, in a conversation just in the last week with one of our missionaries who lives in North Africa and is back for a time because of the COVID crisis uh, told us about um, mission agencies in closed countries, countries that are closed to proclamation of the gospel because primarily because of Islam. Uh, people who, who work in ministries who are missionaries began to use uh, Facebook messaging bots. And if you're unfamiliar with the, what this is, face, the Facebook Messenger platform is a way that many, many people communicate. It has um, 1.3 billion users, including millions and millions of users in the developing world and in what we would consider to be closed countries. And a messaging bot is a way to basically do marketing outreach to hundreds or thousands of people. Um, it was designed primarily by Facebook to make money for Facebook by having businesses use it as a means to try to get their message and their products in front of people. And because there are thousands and millions of people in closed countries that use Facebook Messenger, some innovative missionaries have begun to use this feature not to invite people to pay money for services or goods, but to invite them into spiritual conversations, to invite them to... Um, get involved in Bible study. And when I say invite them, a bot is a computer-generated communicator. It's basically a, a computer-generated program that will text and exchange messages with people. It's not a person-to-person -person communication. But um, the technology exists for people who are using bots to try to get their message or their product in front of people to see the patterns that are being established by people. And it's possible for missionaries who are using this technology and technologies like it to see which people have um, shown interest in spiritual conversations and which people have even gone so far as to enter into Bible studies and um, do that at further to, to growing degrees of involvement and interest and to then to take the people who are showing that interest who have uh, spent more time and, and objectively have been interacting with truth to then contact them personally. And so the, the people who are using this technology are able to plant many, many seeds and then to look for seeds that seem to be growing and to then turn special attention to them. Another development which I learned about just in the last week is that uh, because of the present peace talks that are going on in Afghanistan, Christian people from all of the major people groups in Afghanistan, and that would include Pashtus and Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazaras and Imak and Turkmens and other, other, there are multiple people groups in the nation of Afghanistan, and there are Christians from each of those people groups who have quietly connected with each other, and there has been a plan in light of the present talks, especially because there is still concern that the Taliban and other Islamic terrorists may continue to cause trouble in Afghanistan, to have a worldwide prayer effort where believers in Afghanistan from all of these different people groups are going to connect with Afghan believers and Western 
um, workers who have been connected to Afghanistan in North America, in Europe, in, in South Korea, and together, uh, using technology, there will be concerted efforts to, at, fair, at prayer and fasting, uh, pleading with God to move for the benefit of Afghanistan. This is a use of technology that allows the diaspora of Afghan Christians and the disciples of Jesus who are in the country and the people working among them to connect. It's a beautiful thing. Slightly more controversial is um, a growing movement by Christian Bible translators, including a subset of the Wycliffe Bible translators, to use um, AI or artificial intelligence in the work of translating the Bible. As you probably know, Bible translation is very difficult that um, there remain thousands of languages and dialects that do not have full translations or partial translations of the Bible. And um, with, I think, wisdom and prudence, Wycliffe is using some artificial intelligence to try to speed up the process of Bible translation. In again, I, I would not begin to even claim to be an expert or even close to that in understanding the technology. But artificial intelligence uh, in the realm of translation basically gets better the more and more data is put in and patterns are recognized and understood. And so at the very least, artificial intelligence uh, will be will give Wycliffe translators and other translators the ability to work faster, probably with less intensive teams, and will likely make it possible for more works to be done in languages that were uh, that are spoken by relatively fewer people to be reached at quicker times. The, the controversy is in uh, the obvious limits at present and probably forever in artificial intelligence's ability to get subtle idiomatic and cultural issues uh, in the original text and in the language and culture that the, lang the Bible is being translated into. And so there are wisely people who are cautious and, 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 and counseling caution regard to relying too heavily on artificial intelligence. But I think it's undeniable that this is a technology that's going to assist in the speeding of and multiplication of translations of the Bible, and it will only probably get better. Uh, a darker side to technology in regard to understanding what a missionary is and what they do and how they do it um, is the reality that there is, particularly in some parts of the world, going to be, presently already is, and going to be in some places, heightened surveillance and uh, the ability to do facial recognition and other forms of electronic tracking and surveilling. And so in places where the proclamation of the gospel remains illegal in places where the gathering of Christian people for the purposes of worship and instruction remains illegal. This uh, heightened surveillance and increased technology that's available at present to some governments and other groups will pose a challenge to Christian people that will have to be, have to be weighed and have to be addressed. In any case, um, I want to make the argument that innovation in technology is the way to go. And just as the Christian missionary movement profited by the printing press and the steam engine and various other developments, uh, radio, Christian people will wisely and cleverly figure out how to use technology for the purposes of declaring the truth about the gospel and then helping make disciples and plant churches. So the last number six of the geopolitical trends and cultural changes I want to talk to you about is not brand new, but is emerging and growing, I think. And it's the idea of business as mission rather than traditional missionaries who raise support, who are uh, perhaps um, sent by a mission sending agency and remain an employee of that mission sending agency. The idea of business admission is that Christian people who have the gifts and abilities, especially entrepreneurs, to create businesses and therefore create jobs and generate revenue and 
pay taxes and otherwise uh, do good things for cultures um, can use business as a means to move into uh, unreached places and not only have the opportunity to communicate the gospel and plant churches, but also uh, sustain themselves and benefit the the culture around them by providing jobs and tax revenue and so forth. So this diagram sort of makes the argument a Christian entrepreneur starts a business in a struggling economy and creates jobs for the unemployed. That allows people who, particularly people who are living in poverty or uh, who are stretched to provide medical care for their families and they can have stabilized housing. Um, they can they can then, uh, from those places of having some of their most basic needs met, can then be part of church planting and church planting movements. That job creation um, can be used to fight slavery and human trafficking and other injustices, and it would otherwise promote healthy families and the proper rearing of children. There's additional um, factor that's not in this particular diagram that I think also warrants mention, and that's what some agencies have talked about, uh, particularly one of the, lo- the largest agency that is part of much of our sending work in Memphis and has been over the years, uh, uses the term, we need to widen the channel. And so it's an analogy about for shipping that if the waterway is wider and deeper, you can bring more ships through it. And the argument, which is a very cogent one, says that right now this particular sending agency, which has thousands of missionaries, um, requires millions and millions of dollars every day, every year, to sustain that. And if we're honest, the overall need, even if we allow for the fact that other parts of the world are going to increasingly be involved in, and shoulder a great deal of the effort and costs of the mission um, effort, that there still remains huge numbers of unreached people groups and the the need, if all missionaries are fully supported, the need to raise support and and have that financial support come from churches and individuals limits the number of missionaries that can be prepared and sent. And that if a significant number of missionaries can go and instead of requiring support raising on an ongoing basis, have a means to sustain their work either by or primarily through a business that is... Um, self-sustaining that that can even be scaled and so that those are the questions does business as meant as as mission work um, does it work in some settings but not in others can it truly be self-sustaining um, understanding that all businesses likely initially need capital to start but can people who are initially missionary uh, minded can they learn the skills to create businesses that are self-sustaining and that have income that is continuously generated over time such that people can be employed and um, stability of visas and even possible scalability to other parts of a given country or even parts of a region, is that possible? And so um, I don't have a definitive answer for you, but I can tell you about some specific examples that I'm familiar with. So we have a, we have a connection with a family that works in a closed Muslim country, and they have um, been, for a number of years now, uh, they have created a carpet business. So they employ local workers, and they are able to pay them significantly better than the usual prevailing wage for unskilled laborers in that setting, and they design carpets and then have local workers make the carpets and then they market those carpets locally but also uh, nationally and internationally and that business has been successful meaning it is growing and they have um, expanded the scope of it and increased the number of people they were able to hire they had some challenges with recent COVID issues but have overcome some of those and continue to uh, do business and Alongside of that, real relationships are built and real communication of spiritual truth is happening. And what we can, what we understand to be missionary work is working as part of that effort. There are other parts of the closed world where Christian entrepreneurs have started fitness businesses or personal training businesses. 
and um, recognizing that that is a it's a business that that people spend millions and billions of dollars in. It happens that these businesses that I'm aware of are in countries that are higher income. It may be difficult, for instance, to sustain something like that in a very poor uh, desert setting, for instance. But nonetheless, there are people who are creating businesses that are uh, bringing regular income and um, giving stability to their reason for being in the country and giving them a context from which to not just do business and hire people, but also to spread the gospel. From a medical standpoint, for physicians and nurses, I think it's understood that there are parts of the world where one can go and be hired and work for a state-owned or other sort of agency-owned healthcare facility. This um, building is Cleveland Clinic's gigantic medical complex in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Raven Peninsula area. And this is not entrepreneurial necessarily from the standpoint of the healthcare worker, but this is a way where a physician or a nurse or other healthcare worker, many different healthcare um, disciplines could, could at least be living in a closed country and could do it and be sustained by the income that comes from their job working in that setting. Again, this is not a solution that's going to work in many parts of the developing world and many parts of the remaining unreached world that are lower income. Nonetheless, there are other strategies that I'm aware of that we've seen uh, connected to or, or affiliated with efforts from people who've left Memphis and are living overseas. And they have included at different times medical education. Um, there, are, there are Christians who have um, provided specific types of services, uh, who have done consulting for countries or for regions, who have helped develop things like uh, emergency medical systems and other national health policies, or have helped establish specialty services. Uh, for instance, in parts of China, Christians who've been involved in developing a thoracic surgery program for a region or for a city. And so these are ways where uh, healthcare-oriented um, disciples, excuse me, can gain access to places and people uh, where it would be otherwise very difficult to do so and can do it while being paid by the host country or other source rather than having to raise support. Not too long ago, one of our families from Memphis um, opened in the Arabian Peninsula a health clinic for um, people who had diabetes and obesity. There are parts of the Arabian uh, Peninsula that are have similar obesity rates to the United States. And so having a Western-trained doctor who got some additional training in bariatric medicine um, was able to open a for-profit clinic uh, in a setting where he otherwise would have had difficulty entering. All right. Um, in summation, the geopolitical and cultural changes uh, that I have highlighted for us to consider and how they relate to the Great Commission are as follows. The growth of the global south and the role that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and in non-Western countries will have in the leading and executing of missionary strategies in the, in the future. Secondly, the ongoing urbanization of the world and the fact that two-thirds or more of the population of the world will be in cities in the next generation or two and that strategies to reach rural areas will likely also be connected to urban strategies. The overwhelming trouble that has haunted humanity since um, Cain and Abel fought each other of selfishness that's manifested as tribalism or religious tribalism or nationalism is an ongoing challenge and seems to be on the rise. That there are, because of nationalism and wars and climate change and other problems there are now and will likely continue to be large numbers of displaced people and refugees who are open to the gospel and have responded, that there are new dazzling technologies that are going to allow us to um, get faster at Bible translation and better at sowing seeds among unbelievers and better at discerning who is going to 
respond to the truth and who we can get more and more information and data to and technologies that will help us be connected across the globe. And then lastly, there will likely be increasing numbers of creative and innovative people who use business in various ways, consulting, creation of services, creation of products, or other other new strategies to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. I hope that's been helpful, and we're going to have a little time to discuss the talk, and if there's anyone who would like to contact me directly, this is my email address, rick.donlin at gmail.com. Thank you.